Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Nonprofit Foundation. Uh, I have Michael Hopkins, PhD. He's an assistant director of the Coastal and Community Program at Hunt Shark Train Conservancy in uh, or in Louisiana. So, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me about your work at the Conservancy. What do you do? So, uh, I'm a geologist by training. I came to work here back in 2016 when I finished grad school. I went to uh, Tulane University here in New Orleans. And I started working here kind of as a, a GIS specialist, which is a, a geographic information systems specialist, basically just looking at geospatial data, collecting data, processing it. But as I got to work here longer, I got more ingrained into the science that we do. And a lot of the science that we focus on is um, related to coastal restoration uh, or coastal monitoring. The Pontchartrain Conservancy started, or it was originally named the Pontchartrain, the Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation and started in the late 80s as a public group that advocated for cleaning up Lake Pontchartrain, which is the body of water that's just north of New Orleans. It's not really a lake, it's actually an estuary. It has a connection to the Gulf of Mexico. But over the years, uh, its mission has grown and morphed into general coastal restoration type of work. We still do water quality. That's a, a separate department from mine uh, where we they go out and monitor the uh, water quality of the lake and the surrounding region. But um, my work primarily focuses on things like um, 
subsidence, for example, which is the the ground literally sinking below you, if you want to think of it that way. It's a huge problem in this region. And one of the reasons why New Orleans has such such environmental issues, it's one of them. We also what, focus- what is that what is that called? Subsidence or subsidence? Yeah, either way, subsidence. Or sinkholes or it's literally a process. It's a common process in a delta, which is New Orleans sits on the Mississippi River Delta, of course. But it's the natural process of the land sinking. So it's if you have a, a volume of sediment that is being laid down over time, as you put more and more sediment on top of the older stuff, the stuff at the bottom will tend to compress over time. You drive out water from the pore spaces between the sediment grains. And as a result, the net effect is that the land surface will go down. But if you have new sediment coming in to to, to kind of compensate for that, you won't get a net change in the land elevation. But in this area, because it's been cut off from the Mississippi River for the most part, there is no new sediment coming in. And so this process of subsidence is, it's, it's always ongoing. It's just because there's nothing new coming in, it kind of just takes over. And so the result is that, you know, the majority of new or uh, about half or a little bit more than half of new Orleans is now below sea level, but it didn't start that way. They started above sea level. It's just, Mm. there's no new sediment to, to come in and, and keep the land surface elevated. What's the time scale that over which this happens and how much drop is there in the elevation on average? in inside the levee system around New Orleans, the average, I think, is about nine millimeters per year, give or take. So when you look at a time scale of like 100 years, that can be a significant amount of elevation change, which, you know, it's, it's constantly ongoing. Some places may have a little bit higher than others, depending on things like, you know, organic material, because a big issue, especially inside the levee system, is... Um, when you draw down the water, like we do, we we have to pump all of our rainwater out, right? Um, If not, it would fill up like a bowl. But the result of that is lowering the water table. And when you do that, you expose all that organic material to air, which then starts to decay. And that decay of organic material uh, causes the land surface to move down even faster. What do you mean decay? Like, what do you mean? Uh, That was an example. Well, just organic rich material. If it's uh, saturated with water in a low oxygen environment, it tends to maintain its bulk, its material. But if you draw down the water and then it gets exposed to more oxygen, the organic material begins to break down and then it loses its volume. It loses the material Hmm. through that decay process. And uh, that can contribute to subsidence. That's a large contributor inside the levee system. But a lot of our other work or a lot of our work focuses outside of the levee system. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with our or the concept of multiple lines of defense. It's an overall strategy where our where we have found that our levee system or our levees and flood walls uh, work best when used in conjunction with natural features like marshes, swamps, natural ridges. And so a lot of our work focuses on kind of the overall science of how to maintain those sorts of things and how to bring them back either through things like direct marsh creation projects, tree plantings, or large scale projects like sediment diversions, which is literally putting a a gap in the levee system of the Mississippi river and letting water out into the marsh to build new land or maintain existing land. 
So that, that was so, uh, yeah. Well, uh, okay. So what 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 do you, what can you do about substance? Can anyone do anything? And if so, what can be done? Uh, there are a couple of strategies. I'm not sure how much of it's being done. Um, let me think for a second. So one one way to reduce uh, subsidence is to let more water infiltrate into the ground to slow down that like that decay process. If you let more water infiltrate into the ground, you keep the ground saturated, you reduce that oxygen exchange, and you can reduce the rate of decay of that material. That'll kind of reduce the subsidence rate. Uh, but the best overall strategy is to add sediment. And you can do add, that. Add it, add it how? What, just on top or... Yeah, you just compact it in. Or what, what do you do? You can pump it out. Uh, there are two primary strategies that you could use. You could um, what would be called dredging, where you literally pump sediment either out of the river or from just offshore. You know, you've seen like barrier island restoration projects where they literally pump sediment from just offshore onto where they want it. You can do it that way. Or what one of the big things that we advocate for are sediment diversions, which is where you make that gap in the river and let the river do the work. The river has sediment in, its, in the water. And so when the water flows out into the marsh or the wetlands or wherever, it's carrying sediment with it. And when the water slows yeah, well, down, it drops that sediment out. What do you do, though, you know, if you have... So I'm imagining a developed area, semi-developed, very developed. If you have a city, what can you do? I mean, and, and is the rate of settling equal... Or does this create, is there uneven settling and does this cause building foundations to fracture? You know, like, how do you do this evenly or can you even do it? And even if you're not in an area where there's any development, how do you do this in an even way? Or what is the right way? What profile are you looking for? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I mean, that's, those are good questions. You can't really do a sediment diversion inside of us, you know, in an urban area. Those would be more strategies that would be like, you know, letting more ground, letting more water infiltrate in to kind of reduce the rate of settling that way. Adding new sediment really won't, it's not very uh, effective, useful. It, yeah, it's just not overall very effective. Right. You're in a developed area. You can't just add a huge amount of sediment. You could slow it down. The other side of that is what, you know, you do it more strategically. Where would a, where would more sediment do the best job? And when we, we think about the best job, we're thinking about uh, storm surge primarily because that's what our marshes and our wetlands and, the, you know, from our standpoint, they have their ecosystem benefits, which is like habitat, you know, for wildlife, fisheries for, for industry, but we're also concerned with things like storm surge. And when we're talking about putting projects in a certain area, uh, we want to maximize that benefit too. And so it's not just an even spread across the whole thing. We have to be strategic about it. And there's also the cost. Okay. So we have subsidence and, you know, earlier on in the conversation, I, I kind of jumped on that. 
What are the other major things that you're looking at in addition to substance? Uh, we are looking at sediment diversions. We, the Pontchartrain Conservancy is part of a, a consortium of organizations called the Restore the Mississippi River Delta. And um, it's a consortium of five organizations. And right now, the state of Louisiana and um, has a, a coastal master plan that they put together roughly over five, to, I think five to six years. And in that plan is these projects called sediment diversions, which is like I described earlier, these gaps in the levee and strategic locations that capture river water and sediment and lets it get deposited out in certain parts of the, the coast. Uh, the idea is to combat land loss. Land loss, I'm sure you're aware in Louisiana is a, is a, in a crisis. And how does land loss happen? It can happen in multiple ways. Uh, most people think of, you know, like coastal erosion, like a storm comes in and the waves, you know, crash over the marsh and then it kind of disintegrates over time. Uh, that's one way, just like short erosion, direct erosion. Uh, you can get saltwater intrusion in certain locations that kill the vegetation. And when the vegetation dies, it's sort of the material just kind of disintegrates in a way because the vegetation in a way is holding the marsh sediment together. But in general, it's subsidence. It's a, it's just a gradual lowering of the land surface over time. That's one of the big biggest drivers of land, land loss. Well, how, how does, so if I'm right on the water, I mean, I've got water all around me. And if I look at the land, let's say I've got, you know, a little beach or again, a marshland, it, it, there, I, I would guess there'd be tons of water beneath me. Does substance happen a lot faster in those areas or what does it look like? It typically probably would happen slower because you, I would say off the I would say off the top of my head it probably would happen slower, but there are multiple contributors to subsidence. It's not just one or two processes. There's you know as many as ten. Some of them can be man made, uh, man induced. Uh, others are just natural processes that the rates of them can vary depending on your location. But something like being inside the levee system versus being outside the levee system, that uh, that organic material decay. That happens at a much slower rate outside the levee system. So that contribution to the overall rate is relatively slower. What do you mean? What, what is the action of the levees? They actually slow down decomposition? Oh, sorry, they speed up decomposition? It speeds it up because, it, like I said earlier, we have to pump out rainwater out of New Orleans because otherwise the water table would be much higher and would be you know flooded in some locations because we're so low. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, we have to pump water out, and the act, the very act of pumping water out lowers the water table. And when you lower the water table, that's when you get that organic material is more exposed to oxygen. And that's what kicks off, kicks that um, decomposition process. But when you're in a in an area outside of the levee where, you know, the water table is very high or you're right on the water, that becomes a minor process compared to inside the levee. So what happens when oxygen hits this organic material? It just, it degrades and becomes what just, what does it turn into? And it compacts as well? Uh, yeah, it can, uh, compaction is a big factor too. Yeah, it's just, an, it's a, that's more, that's a little bit outside my wheelhouse, like the actual chemistry of it, but it's, it's a chemical process, the oxygen interacts with or it, it actually the bacteria it, it's more of a activation of bacteria that can thrive with the oxygen 
now they have more oxygen to work with, they can break down that organic material more quickly. Interesting. Okay. So what, what are some of them? Uh, have you like, have you pioneered any methods to, you know, to stop this process? Anything interesting that you've come up with? Not we in particular. I mean, some of the strategies to reduce it would be like building more green spaces, allowing for storm water to, you know, when, when it rains, rather than the water go into the storm drains, it would actually get re- retained within the landscape so that it can infiltrate into the ground. That's been done quite a bit in New Orleans, uh, especially after Katrina. And in the year since Katrina, you know, we get a heavy rain and we get parts of the city that flood with, you know, several feet of water in some cases. And so we have become, you know, overly reliant on our drainage system, which is at this point, you know, very old. It's over a hundred years old and um, it's only capable of handling a certain amount of water, you know, that, Every New Orleanian always knows, like how much how much rainwater can the pump can the pumps handle? They can handle one inch in the first hour, and a half an inch in every hour thereafter. Yeah, every New Orleanian would know that statistic. Okay, but when you have a rain event that causes three inches in an hour, that system cannot handle that much water. We had a rain event that was let's say back in 2019, it was in advance of a tropical storm that was in the Gulf. It wasn't, the storm wasn't even here yet. And parts of the city got nine inches of rain in three hours. I mean, it's no drainage system in the world can do that, can keep up with that. So ours, even though it's still very good compared to other places in the world, no, I don't think any system is quite like the New Orleans drainage system, but it quickly, it's becoming very apparent and it has become apparent that we have to deal with water in other ways. And one way is by constructing green infrastructure projects like rain gardens, bioswales, ways of keeping the water like on the surface and letting it infiltrate more slowly rather than have it go into a storm drain. And then the storm drains get over, you know, overwhelmed. They can't pump that much water. And so the kind of a, a side effect of that is you allow more water to infiltrate in and you start to affect those, those compaction issues that we talked about earlier. So what is the remedy if it, uh, if it rains like crazy, what, what can be done? Or you, don't, you can only prepare for it beforehand, but in the moment, is there anything you can do? Quite honestly, no. Sandbags. I mean, that's a regular site around here um, mm. you can walk to a building and you can walk around downtown New Orleans and, you know, you'll see next to the door outside, you know, um, a few hand, a few sandbags. And you think to yourself, why are there sandbags? Oh, they must, they must flood when it rains. You know, they're literally putting sandbags in front of their door so that it does, the water doesn't get in. I mean, what, have there been any really bold, but kind of crazy idea projects proposed to stop this? I mean, people just keep saying, you know, build bigger drain, big, build a bigger pumps, you know, get the water out as fast as possible. But no, I haven't heard of any, any crazy, you know, schemes to, to do that. It's just, we kind of have to live with it to some extent. Then to a large extent, well, this has always been the case. Is there any hydraulic utility from the amount of, you know, if you, if you have levees and it rains three inches in an hour, could you then use that as a, um, you know, an impromptu like hydropower? Uh, could you use the water and I mean, and, could you send it deliberately over, uh, you know, cascade it out and, harness energy from it somehow i mean i don't i don't think you could do that no uh so the way that the system currently works is that there are uh drainage canals that are that are literally 
from Lake Pontchartrain to the north, and they extend southward into the city. And you have a drainage, the the underground drainage system, uh, which links into pump stations. And the pump stations pump the water from the pipes, the underground pipes, into the drainage canals. And then the drainage canals go, you know, they carry the storm water into the lake. During Katrina, some of those canals failed because the storm surge came from the lake into those drainage canals and caused those, um, the flood walls that are along those canals to fail. Uh, But since Katrina, they've built pumping stations on the lake. And so now if there's a hurricane coming, the way that it should work is that water is pumped from the city into the drainage canals. The water then goes down the canal to the lake. Then another pump station pumps the water out of the canal into the lake. So in theory, it's better than it was before Katrina, of course. All right. So what is your work project-based or in general, like, you know, you're working on coastal remediation. So what's, I don't know, what's your day, your week, your month, or what, you know, what are the big projects for the year that you're working on? Uh, It, it changes with the time of year. Um, it is project-based, but it's also kind of um, spur of the moment, like what's, what's currently going on. And, we have a couple of long-term projects. Uh, can describe a couple of those. So one of the big ones that we have right now is our uh, swamp restoration program. Um, we've been doing this for close to ten years. Uh, it's been it's been ongoing since before I even got here. And we have identified key areas. So certain areas around New Orleans have been identified as you know key landscape features. These features offer the best protection against storm surge and um, our critical habitats. And one that we've identified is the uh, called the Maurepas land bridge. And it, it's a strip of land that separates Lake Pontchartrain from Lake Maurepas. And this is kind of North and West of new Orleans. And um, we've been planting cypress trees out here and a couple other species, but primarily cypress to reforest this land bridge back in the late 1800s. It was logged extensively. And uh, it, it essentially converted into marsh grass. There are some relic areas that are still like forested with trees, you know, swamp trees. and But for the most part, it but, is you know, open marsh. So the trees are big anchors to keep, uh, keep this from happening, it seems, right? Well, they're a buffer against storm surge. Uh, is that what you mean? Mm. Yeah, yeah, like what, what is the mechanism by which trees keep, you know, keep the soil there and also prevent it from turning into... Uh, you know, subsiding, I guess, into the water and turning into like a marsh. Well, actually, it's not really the thing about how to word this. So it wasn't necessarily that the, it, it was literally the cutting of the, it was the cutting down of the trees that led to it being converted into a marsh. Well, is it that the root systems are so extensive that they, I guess they create a different structure for the underlying soil that doesn't erode as easily when it's filled with water or like what, you know, what is the mechanism by which the trees stop this process? You mean stop the process of converting to marsh? Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, it's just, it's a, it's a habitat. It's a comp, it's a competition between, you know, what can survive there. If there were uh, swamp trees, you know, grasses really can't take root. They can't compete with the trees. They, they can't get access to sunlight if there's a canopy of trees, right? So if you cut down the trees, Grasses can more easily survive, so they can colonize an area that was uh, that used to be swamp, um, mm. that used to be tree covered. But the the idea is that trees offer uh, a better buffer against storm surge because, of course, you know they off 
trees offer more resistance to the to the water than grass does. And so if you jump forward in time a little bit to like the 1950s, there was a shipping channel that was dredged east of New Orleans called the MRGO, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. And uh, it allowed saltwater to intrude tens of miles inland. It didn't raise salinities really, really high, but it raised them enough such that the area that we're talking about, the Maurepas Land Bridge, the salinities got high enough that it really prevented cypress trees from naturally regenerating in some of these areas, some of these critical areas. But since Katrina, that that shipping channel was uh, was closed, and now we're seeing salinities decrease at, to the point that significant areas are suitable to be replanted. And so that is a big focus for us, is to get trees in the ground to reforest this critical land bridge. Because if we don't, then if we lose it, at not only the habitat that's lost, but just the, the risk from storm surge goes up for a lot of people. And um, we really want to prevent that from happening as best we can. So how long have the trees been there and planted? And, you know, has it been years or is it just recent? Uh, it's fairly recent. It's been within the last 10 years. Our oldest planting is about eight to 10 years. But we've learned a lot from it. You know, there's an invasive species called Nutria. They're kind of like a, I don't know, like a big rat. Like capybaras. But they, you know, like, I guess they're kind of a mixture of a, like a rodent beaver. Yeah, yeah. Way, or... And they they are very destructive eaters. And they, they eat young, like young vegetation. And what they'll do is they'll dig out the roots of these trees. And they'll eat just a certain part of the root. And then just kill the tree. So when we first started planting... Some some plantings had almost 100% mortality. All the trees were dead because of the nutria. And so we came up with a, there actually are. They're going to make a, a nutria burger restaurant right in the area and eat them. Maybe that would get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. They, um, I think the state of Louisiana offers $5 a tail if you, if you bring them in. Yeah, if you kill. I know it's, maybe it's ridiculous. Are they edible or no? Um, I think they are, but I've never tried them. <laughs> I think people, yeah. there are some people that do eat them, but uh, we found that if we put a stake in the ground with a plastic sheet around it, we call them nutrient protectors, <clears throat> that our mortality dropped and we have about an 80 to 90% survival. So I why the nutrient can't dig it or what? what they, they, they'll leave them alone. Yeah, they, they won't. It's just a plastic sheet that surrounds the tree. If they're a little bit older, once they're a couple of years old, or I don't know exactly how old, but a, a few years will pass, and and then they they're not interested in those trees anymore. Oh, so, why they? Oh, because they're not young, delicious, tender roots, I guess. Huh? Right, exactly. Another long-term, ongoing project is an area on the east bank of the river, below New Orleans, like south of New Orleans. It's a it's a natural, semi-natural, I'll say diversion of the river. So about 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, during the flood, oh, I guess it was the flood of 2011, 2012, the Mississippi River spilled over its bank in this location. And now there's no artificial levee here down in this area. It's, you know, just kind of, it's almost to the end of the river. The water spilled over the natural bank and it found its way into a canal, an existing canal. Well, the flood was so long and it was so prolonged and that eventually the river sort of carved a path from the river into this canal. And it 
initiated a permanently flowing channel of the Mississippi. And it's been growing in size ever since. And every year gets a little bit bigger. There's more water going through it. And it's really neat because there hasn't been a a free-flowing channel in this area of the Mississippi in a long time. And so we've been monitoring the ecological changes that have been happening and the land change. And it's really amazing to see what has happened in just 10 years. We see uh, mud flats growing from where there was just open water. We're seeing trees growing where there had just been grass a few years ago. I mean, why, why is that? Is that because of the, the nutrient consist the nutrients in the Mississippi, or is there other reasons? Uh, it's a combination of things. I think it's it's mainly the presence of fresh water has pushed the salinity out a little bit, and so now the trees can survive. It's the added sediment, so you're making the ground a little bit higher, and so because the trees can't survive in water, you know, constantly, they can't constantly be flooded. So the little bit of sediment that's coming in is uh, allowing these trees to take root and survive. And just seeing, you know, the number of birds that are utilizing the the new wetland is just, it's amazing to watch. Um, that's really cool. Yeah, we're, we're trying. But why to- is it? Is it just because there's a consistent channel water source there now or no? Yeah, yeah. It's basically, yeah, that's it. There's a There's a constant source of fresh water and sediment. And so it just... It so clearly demonstrates we bring people down here all the time to see what the benefits are. You know, there's been a controversy about sediment diversions and people saying, you know, you have this other this camp of people that are against them because there are going to be ramifications towards the fishing industry and things like that. But to see what the benefits will be, it's really a great location to highlight, you know, what adding a little bit of water and some sediment will do. It will build land. It will maintain existing land. And it's just so neat to take people out there and say, here it is, you know, look, see what, this is what it is. So, so the benefits, uh, what are the drawbacks again? Are there any, or is it just perceived in the minds of the people that are against it? There are drawbacks and those would primarily be towards, it, it changes, it, it does change habitat. If you're putting fresh water into an area that had been primarily salt water, uh, you're going to change where those species exist. You know, you're going to drive uh, saltwater species further out or to different locations, and you're going to have freshwater species that will, you know, kind of come in, move in. Um, this is particularly a touchy subject with like oyster fishermen. You know, they, they rely on certain salinity conditions to get their harvest and they lease water bottom, you know, they lease these areas that from the state. And so they can't just pick up their oyster harvest and move it. You know, they depend on certain conditions to exist. And if there's a huge amount of fresh water coming in, you know, they, if it's going to be constantly coming in, there's nothing that they can do. Uh, They'd have to move their lease or, you know, these are all conversations that we're trying to have with fishermen, with scientists, with state policymakers, of how to mitigate the detrimental effects from diversions. And when I mean detrimental, I mean like the impacts to people primarily. Right. Okay. And the problems you deal with seems to be uh, very complex and multifaceted. And I mean, like, I don't know, really tricky. So I, <laughs> I applaud you for you know working on this stuff. 
Don't um, think. What's what's the best way? I mean, how how important is public involvement and public knowledge of what you're trying to do for what you're trying to do? Does the, does the public need to be able? Can can you just do your work in the dark and it's fine? Or do you really need not only the public's knowledge of what you're doing, but their help? No, we we definitely need their help. That's why we and we try to engage with people that you know make their living on the water. They recreate out there. We we want to know this isn't just about what we want. We're, we're following science. We, we follow what science is telling us, but at the end of the day, when you're talking about restoration or you're talking about how do we approach a problem, it's people have to be involved in that conversation. We can't make these decisions for them. We, we need to be involved because whatever decision you make should be grounded in science. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but no, we do need, we do need to involve people because I, you know, when I'm ta- thinking about these sorts of problems, I want to know how they'll impact people. If we're going to be putting fresh water into an area that's been primarily salt water, yeah, there's going to be ecological changes. It's just how it works. We live in a delta. That's It's a constantly changing environment. And if it's going to affect someone in a harmful way like that, then I we, we there needs to be some sort of mechanism to help them, to alleviate that that effect. And I don't know what those are but we can try to quantify what those effects might be. And that's where, you know, me and my staff come in is we want to try to quantify what those effects might be and where they might occur. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, you can visit our website. It's uh, scienceforourcoast.org. Okay. That's right. Scienceforourcoast.org. Very good. Well, Michael, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.